Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hey folks, hello and welcome to episode 4-434 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a long and thoughtful conversation with my coach about his new book that encapsulates his training methods and all the things we've worked on over the years. In the couple weeks since we've last talked, I've been ramping up my training a little bit. It's gotten hot a few days now that we're into summer up here, but it's still cool in the mornings. The deer flies are out in force as well. It's not terrible. With the heat and the bugs, there are far fewer people in the woods to contend with. Yeah, so there you go. There's a uh, silver lining. We're going to talk about running in the heat in Section 1, and I've resurrected my old slant pack that can carry two bottles, and I'm wearing that. But more importantly, it gives me a place to put the old iPhone 6 I'm using as my iPod, and that means I can stow a bottle and the phone to leave my hands free to carry the leash. And sometimes that leash has a crazy border collie on the end of it, so having both hands free is an advantage. And heat slows him down a little bit, too. As for the flies, I... Wear a bug hat, which is a contraption whereby you attach a bandana to the back of one of your running hats, Lawrence of Arabia style, that thwarts the aggressive swarms that try to bite you in the head and face. And then I spray that with good old bug spray, and it works for the most part. But you do get the occasional suicide attack in your eye or your mouth. And I did manage to eat and swallow one today when I was out with my buddies. You know, just take a swig of water, wash it down. Good protein snack. And if you want to see how to make a fly hat, I think I posted a YouTube video a couple years back on my channel at CYKT Russell on YouTube. Just search for fly. And you won't get a video of me dancing to the offspring's pretty fly for a white guy. You won't. Thank God there wasn't ubiquitous personal video when I was growing up. Thank God. In section two, I'm going to talk about bringing the energy. And this goes back to the message of controlling what you can control. 
in these days. I've been getting my runs in. Like I said, I lost a week to that sore back, and that put me behind in my virtual race across Tennessee. But I logged close to 40 miles this week, so I'm clawing it back and should catch the buzzard if I can avoid any more injuries. And I've also been working in a bike ride. Uh, every week in preparation for a group ride that I'm hoping to host in July. More about that in the outro. I did get my stand-up desk, and I put it together this weekend. It's called an airlift, and I got it from Costco for $230. So far, so good. And I have a shoe site for you to check out. I have, you know, I love my Hoka's, but I've held off buying a new pair of Hoka trail shoes because they're so damn expensive. Searching around a little for a shoe with a similar cushioning profile, I found the Fresh Foam shoes from New Balance that seem to be pretty good. It takes a couple of runs for the foam to form to your feet, but then the ride is pretty good. I don't need much shoe, personally. But I still need the cushioning and the heel drop, or I get plantar fasciitis and Achilles problems when I start loading on the miles. I put these links in the show notes for you, but take a look at joesnewbalanceoutlet.com, all one word, and you can get some decent neutral cushion fresh foam shoes for 30 or 40 bucks. And at that price, even if you can't run them, you can use them for sneakers, no muss, no fuss. I was coming back from a trail run with Ollie yesterday, and I was walking up my front walk. I have a guy working on the house, and he was sitting on the ladder out there. And of course, I catch a toe and face plant right in front of this kid. I guess I was checking my texts or something. And he says, hey, are you all right? And I just smile and brush off the dirt and say, yeah, I'm okay. I'm indestructible. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Okay, this is my heat advisory. The ins and outs of hot weather endurance. Now, every year, about this time, everyone wants to talk about how hot it is and how to run or bike in the hot weather. And I roll my eyes, and I mutter like a curmudgeon, Not this again. How many times have I had to suffer through this article in that running magazine? How many times have I written about it myself? Leave it alone, I screech. Enough! I wail, like Scrooge, beset by demons. Make no bones about it, I declare knowing, as I do, that this comes from an old English saying about the efficacy of fish soup, or really fish stew, because they all lay it out of a common pot, scooping with big hunks of rough bread, sands, bones. And then I ask, what should I write about this week? And you say, how about running in the heat? And I search my archive because I remember writing this exact article for my first podcast in July of 2008, and I can't find it. And I sigh, and I carry on. So I guess today we talk about running in the heat. Bookmark it. Bookmark it this time, because I'm out after this. First, we'll ask the most powerful question, why do you care? Well, you care... Because running, or anything else in the heat, can make you uncomfortable, make you sick, and can even kill you if you try hard enough. 
I mean, the human body is an amazing machine. It is designed to adapt to a very large temperature range, but it needs time to adapt. And those of us who live in places where we have seasons get shoved from very cold into very hot without much warning, add in the time we spend in temperature-controlled environments, and we don't get the natural adaptation that we need to be comfortable in the extreme temperatures of our environments. You don't want to die. So it's best to listen to your body when you're out doing stuff in the heat. I'm no doctor, but if I was, I might warn you to be mindful of pre-existing medical conditions before you go out and push yourself in the heat. Heat puts a different kind of stress on your body. And depending on your conditioning, you can quickly be overwhelmed by the stress of heat. Or you can knock out the Western States Endurance Run in 14 hours and 9 minutes like Jim Walmsley. It all depends on your conditioning. When you get heat sick, you may feel all those symptoms like dizziness, sick to your stomach, chills, delirium, you know. The same symptoms that you get from every other damn thing that can go wrong when you're out on the trail. Let's skip all the talk about sweat rates and salt pills and all that technical stuff. Let's just keep it simple. What can you do to not overheat? So number one, avoid the heat. Yeah, if you don't want to overheat, a good strategy is to avoid it. And this means going out at times when there is less heat, early in the day or late at night. I know folks in Florida who get up and do their training in the hours before dawn to avoid the heat. And you can select routes that are shaded or have a breeze or run by some cooling water features. I was out in the trails on Saturday and it was in the 80s and humid, but I was running in a shady section with a small breeze coming off the pond and it was wonderfully pleasant. And of course you can stay inside on the treadmill or some other climate controlled facility. Remember that one time I was training for Boston and got trapped by a blizzard in a hotel at the Chicago airport? And I just ran around the halls for my workout. Remember that? Your second strategy here would be to deflect the heat. So heat is energy. It is energy from the sun. And another strategy is to reflect that energy before it gets to your body. And this means wearing light colored clothes and hats to deflect that heat. So clothes can be a double-edged sword, right? Clothes can trap the heat as well. So you'll see the two ends of this spectrum in the way endurance athletes respond. Some will wear nothing, a minimum of clothing, to expose as much skin as possible. But And some will wear these big, baggy, large, loose-fitting clothes that breathe. And whatever your strategy is, be mindful of how what you're wearing reflects and traps the heat. Number three, you can remove the heat. Overheating becomes a problem. When your core gets too hot and your natural ability to remove the heat is overwhelmed, you have a very unique and efficient way to remove heat. It's called sweat. Evaporating water absorbs an incredible amount of energy. It's really amazing. And then your body sends blood from your core out to your skin into the tiny capillaries where it can shed excess heat as the sweat evaporates from the skin. That's why you less swarthy folks get all pink when you're hot. That's the blood moving to the skin, to the outside. And you can help your natural heat removal system by staying hydrated and getting electrolytes. You can't sweat as efficiently if you run out of water and salt. And by the way, you probably already know this, but the sweat also causes chafing, 
When it gets hot, don't forget to lube up all those places you don't want skin removed from. And another great way to help your natural heat removal system is to throw on some extra water. That's why dumping that cup over your head or squeezing the sponge on your face feels so good. It's the same mechanism. And there are other products you can hold or wear or whatever that will help you stay cool and shunt the heat. Ice is always good. Some of the bad water racers, they have their support crews actually pack them in ice at the rest stops. And you've probably thrown a handful of ice under your hat in a race. That'll cool you right down. Or if you wear a bike shirt with those big pockets in the back, you can fill those big pockets with ice when you're out in the trail. It takes a while to melt. And the fourth and really the best thing you can do is adapt to the heat. Finally, you know, this is your best bet. It's to practice enough that you acclimate to the heat. Those first couple outings will be a bit uncomfortable, but your body is amazing and will adapt. I am constantly amazed at how uncomfortable those first couple hot, humid outings are. And then in a couple of weeks, I forget about it. Then in the fall... <laughs> Those first couple cold days are uncomfortable, and before you know it, below freezing is ho-hum as well. So take it easy, listen to your body, be kind to yourself, do a little preparation, you'll be fine. And now, let's not talk of this again. And now, for today's featured interview. So, Coach, give us your introduction, give us the 200 words on who you are and what you do. <laughs> 200 words on what I do? You always ask the tough questions. It's the same old thing. I've been training runners and triathletes now for almost 25 years, and 98% of my clients are virtual. I probably started virtual training, Chris. I would think back when you and I first met, there weren't many of us doing virtual training. And I think that's what's important about writing a lot of this stuff down, because one of the things that you note in your book, and I'll, I'll turn this into a question, which is, What's the problem with going out on the internet and just grabbing a training plan, all right? The problem with going out on the internet and just grabbing a training program is, like it says in the book, most of them are done with great intentions, right? There's thousands of them that you can get for free online, but none of them are done with you in mind. And a lot of times it's, okay, Chris has run 60 marathons in his life, and the training plan you might get is based on Chris as a runner and how he trained. Or my other favorite thing is a lot of pros and elite athletes turn into coaches and they start training people like they trained and they write programs based on their experience as a trainer. And again, it's not done with malice. It's just done from their experience and they're not taking the individual in mind. And, and with me, training is always about the individual and gearing a program towards a specific person. Even my pre-built programs, so when I, I pre-qualify people in my pre-built programs and I say, first is what race are you doing? What is your goal? What is your experience? I like to know if they had injury at any point in the training program. And then I can build a pre-built program based around that because I have some personal information about them and their program is done. And then, you know me, I'm open. They can ask me questions and I'll make slight adjustments every now and then for them if, if need be. But it's individual. And I just think we're all individuals and we all respond to the stresses differently and we all recover differently and just use anyone's program is, it can be dangerous and you may not get the results you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, I concur with you on that. The, the best case is you get sort of an average plan, which is not average in quality, but it targets the average, which there's 
you'll get some benefit out of that. Any structured plan, you're going to get benefit of if you follow it, right? Right. Um, But the worst case is, like you said, you're going to get something that's wholly unsuited for where you are, like one of the pro or the elite plans, and that will break you in about a week and a half. Yeah. And one of the things that about just getting any generic program is, again, what results are you looking for? And people have a tendency to underestimate the marathon or underestimate the Ironman and the stresses it's going to put on their body. And they sign up for like, they'll go and and not poo-pooing anyone, but let's say we go on a Nike and we say, well, I'm an intermediate. Well, you're going and you download Nike's intermediate training program. Nike's intermediate training program is based on a sub four hour marathon. That's what their intermediate training program is. And if you've never run anything under 430 and you tried to run in that training program, there's going to be some problems. The self-evaluation, I think, is really, really important. Where am I at? What am I at? I think more training programs that are out there that are geared toward what is your goal time, realistically, who are you, is, is a lot better. And I think in the book, I make that distinction very early on in this book when I say, what is an intermediate or advanced marathon training program? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to run three hours and 30 minutes. An advanced marathon program for you, not you in particular, Chris, but for the individual, may be that, okay, we know I'm a 415 marathoner and I want to go three hours and 50 minutes. That may be an advanced training program for them. Intermediate and advanced just means that, okay, you're trying to get better. And at what level are you trying to get better? Yeah. And you say that for me, and it's interesting because the other thing is a lot of those plans that you'll find, which are the sort of the really, really common ones that you all know, the famous ex-marathoners from the 70s all put out these uh, training plans. And what you'll find is they're targeted at a specific audience, which is a high level amateur male runner, 30 years old or less. That's what they're targeted at. And most of the runners these days don't fall into that category. No. And it's funny. If you look at how many people are first-time marathoners and you look at their age today, we're primarily seeing people over 40 years old taking up endurance sports for the first time because they're stepping up and they're realizing, okay, this 5K, 10K stuff really hurts. I don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) So I want to go longer and easier, right? And so you're, you're finding a lot more of that. I remember doing a study on ultra running some years back. And when I looked at the age of the guys and gals who were winning ultra races, they were all over 40 because they'd been through that marathon thing in their thirties. And they said, well, okay, I don't want to run marathons anymore because you've heard me say this a thousand times. I think racing a marathon, and it doesn't matter if you're a five hour marathoner or a two hour, 45 minute marathoner, if you are racing it to the best of your ability, it's probably the most strenuous thing you can do to your body. Yeah, road marathon. Yeah, undoubtedly. And, and that being said, though, if you look at any of these plans, and I don't care, even if it's one of the walk-run plans or any of these plans, they all have the same, a lot of the same underlying theory, right? Stuff around periodization, around stress and response. So you go through a lot of that in the book, right? Right. How do you choose a workout that's appropriate? Because it's not just what workout and how much, it's when and how that fits in, right? So talk about the periodization, especially given what we just talked about, which is we're not just talking about college athletes and and under 30 people anymore. So the periodization changes 
as you get um, into different age groups. Yeah, and you use a really great word. It's the when to incorporate a workout. Not so much the how, but the when to get the benefit that you want out of it. I use a perfect example. One of my athletes called me yesterday and she's doing her first 50K. She's done a couple of marathons and she's never broken five hours. She's doing 50K and they just changed the restrictions on this race to you have about, you have to average about a 12 minute mile. Yeah. She's, she's never run anything faster than 12 minutes and 30 seconds in a race. Hmm. And she said, can I do that? I said, yes, but we have to structure the program accordingly. And so like any good periodization program, we've been developing her base and she's already seeing improvements. Now the when to add the harder stuff that will get her the 30 seconds, but you're going to get some time by becoming cardiovascularly more fit, right? And we've seen that happen just doing base work. But to take that 30 seconds a mile off means that there's a point in the training process where we have to start doing some harder stuff because her body has to learn how to buffer the lactic acid that's being produced at that harder effort in order to maintain that aerobic threshold effort for longer periods of time. So when do we do that? And and again, with every person, it's a little bit different. I can take you because you're so experienced and you have such a huge cardiovascular base, I can say, okay, we can put strength stuff in your workouts almost any time just to keep you sharp, right? And you'll be okay. Another one of our guys, Danes, a couple of months back said, seems like I'm doing a lot harder work earlier in the process. Yeah. I got no race on the calendar. Why am I doing hill repeats? Yeah. yeah. Well, because you know what? We're going to keep you sharp and, and we want to keep some of that speed up because we see he's a fast guy. You're a fast guy. We don't want to take all that away because you have the conditioning to do it. So I can put your stuff in earlier. I can take it out. I can mix you guys up a lot better than I can a woman like this. I have to be very specific about when I drop in her harder stuff that's going to benefit her. Yeah. And plus she, if she's never done it before, she has to learn both physiologically and mentally how those workouts feel. Yeah. What she's got to learn. Because it can be really jarring to drop somebody onto a track if they've never oh. done an 800 meter repeat before. Right. It hurts. And yeah, it hurts. And you see that. And I think the, the one of the biggest issues with dropping someone on the track too soon is, is when people get on the track, they adjust their running form. Yeah. And all of a sudden they're on the track and they're doing great and whatever. They don't realize, oh, oh my God, my hamstring, because they adjusted their running form. They went to a different yeah. kind of running form. And that to me is one of the biggest things that I emphasize. I so said, when I send you out for track work, you don't want to change your running form on the track work. You're just changing your effort a little bit. On yeah. Yeah. And the other thing it took a while for me to learn was if you're doing these harder speed workouts, you get the majority of the benefit without going all out, right? So if you back it off to 85%, you're going to lower your chance of injury by 99% and you're going to get 98% of the benefit. Could not agree more. I could not agree more. It's not in our nature to do that, but (laughs) you learn. I think I say somewhere in the book that there's absolutely no benefit for pushing yourself too hard that extra 30 seconds. You yeah. get no benefit from that down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no physical benefit. You might get some psychological benefit. Yeah. yeah. And that's all part of it, right? So the psychological part is. Well, the- I think it's, I think the psychological part, and again, you've heard me say this a hundred times. I think, look, the mind shuts the body down. It's not the other way around. And if mentally you haven't been to this hard effort place when you get there, your mind's going to say, I don't recognize this. I'm not doing it and shuts yeah. the body down. But if you've yeah. been there, that's why I look all the time with people when I'm training them, these harder workouts, I look for the mental breakthrough as much as the physical breakthrough because the mental breakthrough is going to be the key to their success. I've been here. I understand this hurt. 
I know how to get through it. But you also talked about, which I thought was interesting, was nutritional periodization, which I had never thought of before, right? I mean, you eat to what you're working out, but I guess I kind of learned this, but never called it, is you have to be lean going into the high response sections of your trending plan, or you just don't get the benefit. Obviously, we burn different energy sources with different energy outputs. And why do I want to put a bunch of sugars and carbohydrates in my system when I'm building my base and I'm teaching my body how to burn fat? That's what I want to put into my system. I want to increase my fat intake in the early portions of training. I want to clean up my diet in the early portions of my training. So I'm starting, one, I'm starting to lean out. Two, I'm teaching the body how to access fat stores better. And then as you move through the training cycle, when you get into those you know, aerobic threshold workouts, now it's a time I want to put some sugars in my system or carbohydrates. And I use the word sugars because we all know that carbohydrates are sugars. We put the glycogen into the system so that ready available energy is there. And I'm, I'm always amazed how many people haven't gotten that at this point, how to fuel each cycle of the training differently. Right. And that's very, very important. And, and the biggest key to that is how you recover coming out of a workout. Because if I don't have the right energy source, I come out of a workout a little bit more exhausted than I would have been had I been feeding my body the right energy sources to fuel that cycle of the training. Yeah. I don't want to be a, a negative Nancy, but most of the recovery products on the market are nothing but chocolate shakes. They're just a big bunch of sugar and you should not drink them. No. Or all I, um, crap. You really should get away from that. When you come out of a hard workout, I always tell people, if you have time, when you come out of a hard workout, fuel yourself with whole foods. Fuel yourself with whole foods when you come out of a workout. If you can, if you can, if you're going to use a protein shake, look for protein shakes that are very, very low in sugar. And, I, and I'm not going to push anyone, but I use a vegan protein shake that sometimes I use for snacks. It doesn't have any sugar. So yeah, it, and the vegan ones typically have less. Um, yeah, I use a vegan protein in them than the other ones because your typical protein is uh, whey based. I don't know how we got down this rat hole, but yeah, it's basically the crap they throw out after making oh. cheese. It's really bad for you. So really bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can disagree with us. It's okay. All the weightlifters will disagree with us. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Exactly. All the weightlifters. We're, we're trying to accomplish something different here. Yeah. We're dumping uh, eighteen pounds a day of, of weight into their system, right? So the most important thing that people would get from this book, and I think the writing was pretty good. I was expecting a lot lower bar from you. I was saying, yeah, this is going to be very. Uh, <laughs> conversational and bloggy. The writing's good, Jeff. Yeah, oh, thank you. Good. Thank so you. you'll have to tell me someday who you got to write it for you. Yeah. <laughs> I've been working on this edition of the book for a long, long time. And then when I got finished, a friend of mine, who we both know, David, said, look, I can't read ebooks. I don't have time for it. He said, make an audio book. Yep. And then I thought, well, I called you up and I said, well, how do you do an audio book? And you said, hire a guy. And I talked to a couple of guys and I thought, oh, every audio book I ever listened to, I've never been excited by the narrator. Yeah. So I said, you know what? This is my passion. This is what I do. I'm going to narrate the book. So the audio book is narrated by me. Yeah, there's a couple of ums and ahs there because I'm not a professional. But I think what comes through in the audio book is the passion that I feel for what I do and how important some of the things that I hit in the book really are doing. And so that's why I did it. And um, I've gotten some good feedback on the people who brought, who brought the audio book. I don't know how they listened to my voice to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. 
So again, I'll apologize for the hammering here, but my house is going to look wonderful. That's okay. So walk us through, I think one of the biggest things people can get from this is the structure of the pyramid of the training process, the way you do it, which applies universally, right? So I don't care if you have a a marathon, a 5K, a triathlon, a tiddlywinks competition, you know, it's the same basic pyramid approach and what those phases are and how you build out to that. And I wish I was the genius who invented this because then I'd be a millionaire, but I'm not. I'm just a guy who believes wholeheartedly in this because I've seen the results across the board from age groupers, first timers, experienced people up to elite athletes. Periodization has become the way to to train. Effort-based training has become the way to train. Structuring a program that lets your body go through various adaptations of growth along the way has become the smart way to train. And I'm very fortunate because I got to work with some of the the guys who did create this stuff. And yes, there have been changes in the science as we understand more about the body. Not really changes in the science, but changes in the effort levels. Now I incorporate a little bit more race specificity in the training because we know that, okay, your body needs to be at that race specificity level through a portion of the training. So on race day, it doesn't go into shock. Zone three was something that for years was known as the no benefit zone. And now we know it's, hey, that's the race specificity zone. So we need to do work there. And I think incorporating a structured program of different muscular adaptations, cardiovascular adaptations along the way, it's just proven science over and over again. So what are the phases? Depending on who you are, I always think that everyone needs to start with a prep phase. And you start with that prep phase because you're going into a training cycle and you want to make sure that your body's in shape. If you're a 60-time marathon runner or eight-time Ironman, the prep phase obviously can be shorter. It can be just a few weeks, so you get the body tuned up and ready to go, especially if you've just come out of a long recovery phase. You got to go back in there and say, okay, let's make sure everything's working the same. Let's do a little bit of strength work. Let's do some easy stuff to begin with. Let's get the body ready. And now the body's ready. So depending on who you are, two to six weeks in a prep phase. And then we go into into phase one or base one. And base one is primarily all cardiovascular structured. And I, I hate the term long, slow distance stuff. Zone two workouts should be workouts that are done at a cardiovascular level that's conversational. So you're developing the mitochondria. You're developing the capillaries in your system. But when you get done with a run, you should feel like you ran. You shouldn't feel like, oh, well, you know, I just took a walk over to the pond and back. You should feel like you ran, but you should feel like the recovery from that run is going to be very, very easy over the next 24-hour period. And then you go into base two. And in base two, I like to start incorporating some early adaptations to zone three running. And that's when you see I put into medium effort um, fartlek runs, not hard effort fartlek runs, but medium effort. So you're starting to teach the fast twitch muscles the fast twitch fibers to wake up a little bit. I don't know how technical you want me to get about this, but when we're building a base, we're developing mitochondria, right? And the mitochondria, in essence, are the little energy factories that make the muscles fire. And and the more you have, the stronger you are. However, as you get lower into those phases, now you take those increased mitochondria, you start working them harder, and they become more powerful, okay? So the mitochondria actually increase in strength And that's what gives you the ability to run longer and harder. And then after that, we're developing more and more in the beginning, more and more and more capillaries. And the more and more capillaries, those little capillaries in our body that transport oxygen, the more of those we have surrounding a cell, right, the the longer we can run because the oxygen transport is a lot better. The two very big keys in these early phases of base one and base two 
are developing the cardiovascular system, developing more mitochondria, developing more capillaries, so blood and oxygen transport gets better. And then when we come out of base, even in base two, I start to throw in medium effort hill work. And medium effort hill work are hill repeats that aren't done hard. Again, they're at that, just into that zone three level. But what medium effort hill work allows you to do, it allows you to work on form. It allows you to work on foot plant. It strengthens the ankles. It strengthens the calves. It strengthens all the lower portions of the legs. So again, we're doing that muscular adaptation thing going in to now when we get into build phases where we're throwing more intensity at you, your body is ready for that work. It says, okay, I'm ready to do it. And again, we gradually increase. We start doing some intervals, some interval workouts. We'll do harder hill workouts. We're still not going to go to the track, but our long runs, we start to do long runs with surges and long runs. I, now I like to really incorporate long runs with longer, stronger finishes. Like, okay, I want you to finish 20 minutes hard. I want you to finish 30 minutes at race pace. So now we're teaching the body to say, okay, I'm a big believer. And you and I, back in the very beginning of our relationship, I remember once you said, I don't know about negative split things. I think people can do it if they've trained to do it. And that's why I like the strong finish. And you saw a girl on our team just a couple of weeks ago. Her marathon PR was 307. She wanted to go to Boston and run sub three. Obviously, she couldn't do that. So she went out with some friends and she set up a course and she went 250 something. And all of our work was based on, okay, I need to create that finish for you. And she ran negative splits her last eight miles because she had been there. She was ready to do it mentally and physically. And then, of course, we get into race specificity. And race specificity can be, again, depending on who the athlete is, a four to six week phase where our longer runs are based more on the kind of race we're going to do and the kind of effort we want to put into that race. And I'm also a big believer in that people should try to train as closely to the race course that they're going to run on. No sense doing a lot of uphill work if you're going into Boston, which is a downhill course, right? There's hill work there. Don't get me wrong. But I would prefer to send you out and say, you know what? I want you to go out and run long downs. Let's beat the quads up. Let's get the quads ready. We do that as part of our training. We have a course with a big hill in it and we run up it, but we also run down it. Yeah. Practice running down it. Running downhill, I always have people say to me, I picked a downhill marathon and I always go, okay, yeah, that's nice. But are your quads ready for a downhill marathon? And then so we have to, you know, completely switch all the training around. A lot of quad strength work, a lot of downhill running. Because, you know, when we went to Pocatello, how many of us fried our legs? Yeah. I made, it, I made it to the half marathon. I was toast. Yeah. I mean, 3,000 feet a drop in the first half marathon. Yeah, it's crazy. It just beats your legs up. And if you don't have the form to sustain that and the strength to sustain that, it's an entirely different training cycle to get ready for that. But, you know, again, that's why I say, you know, try to train on the course that you're going to race on because, again, you're developing the muscle memory, you're developing the mental memory to drive the muscles. It just makes better sense. Right. So essentially what we're doing here is we're preparing, we're building strength, and then we're tuning for the race. Right. Right. And that's a 20-week cycle, right? 20, 24 weeks, depending on who you are. Yeah. 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 And if you're in better shape, you can shortcut some of the base building, but results will vary. Depends on the athlete. So one last thing for you here is um, this is all effort-based. None of this is, well, some of it's pace-based if you have a a good handle on what your pace is, but most of it's effort-based. How do people set their heart rate zones? The conversation we've had about a hundred times, but nobody knows how to do that. Well, I give people a time trial and it can be a 30 to 40 minute effort, 10, 15 minute warm-up, get the body ready to go. And then you want to push at a 5K effort 
or 5K pace for those who have that locked into their head, which, as you know, is a very hard sustained effort. And you get a couple of things out of that. If you keep that effort sustained, the heart rate itself, okay? So let's say, for me, my lactate threshold, 174 beats a minute. So if I'm running at that 174 beats a minute and keeping a nice flat line, I get a lot of information from that. One, I say, okay, I know this person's lactate threshold is 174 beats a minute. Now I plug that into my calculator to do their training zone. But I also see where their pace starts to fall off. And I say to myself, okay, so this person sustains this pace for 18 of the 20 minutes before it starts to fall off. This person might sustain that heart, their lactate threshold effort for 16 minutes or 14 minutes. So you get a lot out of that pace. So I say to myself, okay, as I go through the training cycle, I know one of the things I have to do is increase this person's strength as well as their cardiovascular base. So I get a lot of things out of that. It's, so it's a 30, 40 minute effort. You do a 10 minute warm up, 20 minutes to 30 minutes at a, a hard effort and a hard effort. And I say, you know, too many people, when they first do, they say, well, my fastest mile is six minutes and 30 seconds. So they go out and they run their first mile, six minutes and 30 seconds, and then they have nothing left, right? Yeah. I don't want you to run at your one mile pace effort level. I want you to run at your 5K effort level and sustain yeah. that as long as you can. Then we pull the information off of that, plug it into the calculator and get your zones. Can you actually see the size of the zones there as well? Because I know the actual depth of the zones is different for different athletes as well. Yeah. I'm not so sure I understand what you mean by the size of the zones. So mine might be 122 beats per minute to 126 beats per minute is my zone three. Oh, oh okay. Somebody so else's might be... You mean the low end and the, and the top end of each zone? Yeah, and some are wider and some are narrower. Yeah. yeah, good point, because as you get into the upper zones, that's where you start seeing the narrowing of the zones. There might be, my personal numbers... My zone two has about an 11 beat range yeah. from low to upper end. My zone three has about an eight beat range. My zone four has like a six beat range from lower to yeah. upper end. Right. And, and so those are things. I'm going to suggest, and I will plug one of my mentors, Joe Friel. I'm not your coach. If you're not using Final Surge, you can go online and you can Google Joe Friel training zones. And um, Joe has a calculator that you can use for free. I would suggest using Joe's because Joe bases your training zones on lactate threshold like I do and not maximum heart rate because maximum heart rate has very little to do with your training zones, but you plug in your lactate threshold and that's where you get your most accurate training zones from. So if I'm going out and doing my time trial, right, I warm up, I do my 5K hard, let's say 30 minutes hard, whatever that ends up being, and I do a little warm down. I know what my max heart rate is because I'm going to see it in the data, right? Towards the end of that 30 minutes, I'm going to be at max probably, right? So well, actually you shouldn't be, but the calculator will show you what your max is going to be. You may feel like you're at your max heart rate zone just because you've been sustaining that effort for so long. That line, what I look for when I send somebody, when someone does an LT test the right way, I see a straight line across those 20 minutes in their heart rate zone. Yeah. With a variation of one to two to three beats in, in that 20 minute section. If I see right. someone's line slanting up, I say, okay, you didn't run hard enough the entire way. So what we have was you went out easy and you built into this harder effort. When you get done with that warm up, I want it to be like the gun went off in a 5K. And one of the things I tell people all the time is look, for the average age grouper, when you run a 5K, you run it from gong to gong. Yes, your pace is going to come down at the end, but you know what? The average age grouper doesn't have the ability to say, okay, well, I'm going to run a 5K and I'm going to go out at 
a seven and a half minute pace and I'm going to come in and finish at a 620 pace. That's not the way 5Ks work. No, and typically you're going to hit it hard because you've got a lot of adrenaline, right? So your first mile is going to be way too fast. Yeah. You're going to settle down in number two, then you're going to struggle in number three, right? Right. So if I plot my heart rate across those, what do you see my heart rate doing in there? Have you ever run a 5K since I've worked with you? Yeah, Thanksgiving turkey trots. I don't think I've ever, I have to go back in your calendar and look at this because I think with you, it's, you're one of those guys, I just got your plan for the fall and the winter. And I'm saying, okay, it's a nice aggressive plan, but there's nothing crazy out there that you're not going to be able to do. Yeah. I like the bike race, by the way. That'll be yeah, a lot. We're creating our own fondo. Yeah, as long as you don't kill yourself on the mountain bike. Um, no, no, we're going to do it on the road bike. I've got my old Fuji. Oh, you're going to do a road fondo? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Um, it's only, only like 40, 50 miles. So yeah. Um, that today. Yeah, I, I would have to go back and look. Unless I'm looking for data, when you run your 5K, I just look and say, okay, how did Chris do in his 5K? And I know when you run a 5K, you probably at this point in your life aren't going out there to say, I'm going out to win my age group, which you probably could do. You generally go out to have I'm fun. I'm trying to not give myself too much pain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> now I have people on the team, like this young boy who um, I just started working with, he, he wants to run a half marathon. And so we did his training zones off of his 5K. And it was an a nice straight line. He went out and he ran as hard as he could for the entire 5K. And I got a nice straight line off of his 5K and dated built off. And his heart rate level stayed the same, but his pace came off a little bit at the end as I expected it to be. But now I had the data to work with and to plug in. And he wasn't maxed out the entire time. But you know, when you're 12 years old, his lactate threshold is 190 beats a minute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's fun to see them run fast. It's fun to watch them run. Yeah. And he won the over, he, overall winner of the race, which I thought was really I know. Yeah. I know. All right. So I'll let you go. But uh, how do people find your new book? Anything else you want to give us? Yeah. Um, you can go to my website, teamprsfit.com. If you scroll down the bottom of the page, the beginner marathon book is there, the ebook, the ebook for. Train Smarter, Run Faster is there, and the audiobook is there at $14.99. You can just click on the link, buy the paste. About 10 minutes later, you'll get the book delivered to you. And if you buy the ebook, you should probably make a note in the payment, whether you're um, Android or iOS, because there's two different downloads there. I am taking on new clients now. I haven't been for a while, but I'm now taking on new clients again. Although this is a very difficult time because there aren't many races out there going on. They just officially canceled Lake Placid again. Yeah. Yeah, they canceled New York too, I think. Yeah, they canceled New York. So I'm making up my own races, but I have a history of doing that. So we're just going to make up our own. Yeah, I think the important thing as we go through this is to stay fit, right? And you can't say, oh, well, there's no races, so I'm not going to train. I think you have to train. That's going to keep you healthy. I think anyone who thinks we're not going to see a second round of this is sadly mistaken because we're going to see a second round, this resurgence in Florida and Texas yeah. and the southern states had opened up right away. Our governor yesterday, who I think has done a brilliant job through all of this, um, has now said, if you're coming into New York from Florida, Texas, Arkansas, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona, you get 14-day quarantine. Yeah. And so I just put... But, so I, mean, but I, think, I think one of the things I'm noticing is that you just can't stay in um, a holding pattern. You still got to mix it up. 
right? So I train every you, day. Get, you can't get stuck in an endless base building phase or an endless maintenance phase. You got to create your own activities and your own cycles. So otherwise you get stale, right? You yeah, we did a virtual 5K here, Peter and I, and um, we did it for our food, local food bank and we raised almost $13,000 for the local food bank. I'm training every day right now. It, it's funny. I'm not really training to do any race, although I have Ironman Chattanooga that I don't think is going to happen on the books. Because of my personal physical condition, my girlfriend got this, and I think we both stay in shape, but I think being physically fit is one of the things that helps fight it off, as with anything else. So the staying condition now, it's a key to fighting this nightmare off. Yeah, plus in the apocalypse, you need your cardio. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. I'm going to let you go. Thanks for the chat. Oh, no, thank you. I always like this. All right. So we'll get something cooking. Okay. You have a good day, Chris. You look good, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Bringing the energy. Energy is life. Are you bringing the energy? Today, we're going to start with an exercise. Now, if you're out running, driving in the car, or folding the laundry, you may have to wait until you get back. But here's what you're going to do. Pull out a piece of paper. That's the uh, flat, thin stuff made out of dead squish trees that we used to use to write on and wrap dead fish. Okay, if you really have to, you can bark audio commands at your electronic digital taskmaster, but I still like paper. There's something ancient and powerful about writing. It's the creative magic that our ancestors understood. It's summoning into existence of physical things from metaphysical dust. They climbed deep into the caves at Lascaux to print that magic onto the walls in the dark, thin places between this world and the next. And in doing so, they gave ideas birth. They brought to life thoughts and images and plans and doubts and energy. And that's what I want you to write on your piece of paper in big, bold, bright letters. Write on it in Sharpie with an exclamation point. Bring the energy. That's your reminder. Bring the energy. And leave it where you can see it in the morning. Make a few copies. Put it where you can find it when you need it. Bring the energy. Why? Because we get caught up in all the stress and problems and challenges of this life. On this side of the thin walls, so to speak. In this brief corporeal reign of glorious life. And we let it beat us down. We forget to bring the energy. It's a simple variable. It has a giant impact on everything. It's totally under your control. It doesn't take any training or advanced degrees. It doesn't require an executive title. It does not need experience. It doesn't care how old you are. It doesn't care about your race, creed, or color. It doesn't require permission. It is free. It's inside you right now at your disposal, and I'm asking you to reach in and find it. It's the energy you bring to your life your interactions with your world. Oh, you say, I can't do that. You moan, Chris, you don't understand. I've got problems. Really? What's your situation? Maybe you're trapped at home. Maybe you're living through some sort of global crisis. Maybe you're worried about keeping your job. Maybe you're worried about hating that job. Maybe you're worried about money or sex or food. Whatever. Maybe it's enough to make you climb into a hole, pull the zipper shut, 
and pull the shade in after you. And you think you're different. Yeah, you'd like to climb back into bed, but you can't. You can't hide. You have to get up and face the world. You have to flip on that camera and help customers and interview people and dig ditches. How could you possibly bring the energy? And there's your problem statement. There's the cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, you're a drooling zombie from all your worries. On the other hand, I'm asking you to bring the energy. But it's not a disconnect. Why? Because the energy is the antidote. When you bring the energy, it evaporates all those worries. Energy is life. Energy kills the drooling zombie in you, or more precisely, revives and reinvigorates that zombie. So let me tell you a story. I was running a sales organization at a startup during a global financial crisis, and the board of directors hired a new CEO. And every day he would hover around my office door and ask me how the revenue picture was. And I would reply, it's all good, which would really frustrate him. Because revenue-wise, from this new CEO's point of view, things were not good. So why was I calm and happy? Because everyone else was freaking out and jumping out windows. I was focused on doing what I could. I was bringing the energy. The energy you bring is independent of the situation. If you consistently bring the energy, you will have a positive impact on the external world. Bring the energy in your words and your actions. That's a manifestation of leadership. But Chris, you say, I have challenges. I have unsurmountable barriers. And my answer is, that should make you happy. You should be smiling. You have found a worthy opponent. You have a reason to fight. You have purpose. These challenges that are keeping you in your bed with the blankets over your head, clutching the channel changer in one hand and your iPhone in the other, shivering in fear of the scary world, you can tell a better story for yourself than that. These challenges are the seed of your great stories. The stories we tell... They don't start with everything was okay and then we did some stuff and then it was still okay. That's dead. That's boring. The stories we tell, we live, we love, they start with the challenge. I was lying in the grass throwing up and I didn't know if I could continue. That's how a good story starts. Bring the energy and watch the world change around you and get pulled into your gravity well. It is exactly those times of extreme stress that change us. These are the times when we find out that we are stronger than we thought. These big challenges force us to adapt. They force positive change. Life without challenges is not life. Honor your challenges. Embrace them. Bring the energy. Another story. My puppy, Ollie. Now, he's a lot of work. You can tell he's a lot of work. If you can imagine the things he can possibly do or get into to cause trouble, he's doing those on a daily basis. Ollie is a challenge. But I'll tell you something else. When Buddy died and we had no dog, it was quiet and peaceful in the house. But it was lifeless and it was dull and it was dead. Ollie is that magic coin in our lives now. And like all magic, he blows like the wind, good and not so good. But he's full of energy, full of life. And I'll take that chaotic breeze of life over the sargasso sea of lonely death every moment of every day. Challenge is life. 
Energy is life. So get that piece of paper and write on it with that Sharpie. Bring the energy. For things to get better, the world doesn't have to change. You have to change. And what's under your control? That energy that you bring. Seek out those big challenges and bring your energy. Lean into the things that everyone else is afraid of. Lean into the things that everyone else says can't be fixed. What do you have to lose? Bring the energy. Don't be that timid soul lurking in the shadows, cowering. Be the brave one that says, hey, it's all good in the midst of the storm. And puts a smiling shoulder to the wheel of life. Be the one who brings that energy to give life the big push when life needs a push. So what do I want you to do? I think you know. Bring the energy. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have run in a periodic progression of fitness through the training pyramid to the end of the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 4-434. And going forward, I've adjusted some things. I let Rachel know I'm going to stop tracking my food, stop tracking the nutrition, because I got down close to 170, and with the additional miles now, I'm tracking very well to stay lean. I don't think of this as a particularly big adjustment because it's my new normal for the past five years or so, but I was 10 to 15 pounds heavier before, and I've still got a little gut, but I feel pretty good at this size. I just don't want to track my weight every day during the summer. It's summer. I want to be able to eat some of those summer things in moderation that I love. And I've also, like I said, resurrected Fujisan, my 20-plus-year-old steel racing bike, and I've been getting some rides in. My legs are fine. I'm just trying to get my bum conditioned to those longer rides. You know what I mean if you're a cyclist. I'm trying to organize a group ride for charity in July. I've got a course that goes around the periphery of Groton that is about 40 miles which is about the right distance. Long enough to be a challenge, but short enough not to be exclusive. And I'm still working out the details. And I'm also setting my sights on running the Wapak Trail end-to-end, back and forth, uh, and around Labor Day sometime. I was waiting to see where the Boston Virtual Race would be held, or when it would be held, because maybe I could feed two birds with one scone, as they say. No one says that. But that would be in the mid-40s of miles, and it's all technical mountain running. The 18-mile version takes me about four hours, so this version would probably take about 10 hours, you know, depending on the weather and the conditions. And if either of these things sound like a fun adventure, give me a shout. I'd love the company. All the fall races are canceling now as well. Uh, So the only one I see that is still on is Marine Corps. Which, if we're honest, that would probably be the worst marathon you should be holding in a pandemic. It's super crowded. It's all slow runners and new marathoners. And everyone crams onto mass transit to get to it and from it. I mean, they canceled the Badwater 135, which is a couple hundred ultra fiends in Death Valley. And then they they want a whole Marine Corps with 50,000 amateurs in the middle of a city. Anyhow, I'm good. I'm still training. I'm still working in my home office. I'll be at standing up more now because I have my stand-up desk. 
So the other thing I did is I watched my way through season one of American Gods. I love the the book by Neil Gaiman, American Gods. So I finally broke down and bought the show. It's really good. I, I like Ian McShane as Mr. Wednesday and anyone with a working knowledge of the history of the English language can tell you which god he is. He's got his own day. My garden is coming along nicely. These last few weeks of hot weather, they've kicked it into high gear. And you know, garden, it's the same root word for French and English, jardin, garden. And it comes way, way back from the Indo-European root. In uh, German, it's gart, right? So there's all they're all from the same root. And it basically means enclosure. It has the same root as guard or guardian, right? Enclosure. And the same root gives you yard in America. So there you go. To take you out, I want you to remember that as endurance athletes, we are all very well equipped for the apocalypse. Yeah. Everyone knows that good cardio is vitally important during a zombie attack. And not only that, we trail runners, we're very comfortable pooping in the woods. Another valuable skill in the apocalypse. So just remember, if society fails and fails into chaos, you can always run away and poop in the woods. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed. So hard it made him cry. To take you out is track number 13 from Brian Sheff, the rock opera, by the Nays, called Here, There, and Everywhere. In my face.
my side From Brian there's no place to hide, oh yeah 